The title of this morning's message is Whatever It Takes. Whatever It Takes. We're talking about making major adjustments in order to obey God, in order to follow Him. In the course that we're studying on Sunday nights, we're, we're discussing the things that we're learning about experiencing God. And one of the things that we have learned, I'm just going to ask that they go ahead and pull that chart up right now. Uh, this is kind of a diagram that helps us understand what we've been learning through these weeks of study. God is at work in the world around you and me to redeem that world, to bring people into a relationship with himself. That's number one, and that's the first reality, that God is at work. And as God is at work, you'll see the word relationship there. And what is he working to do? Well, he's pursuing you for a love relationship with himself, not just everybody else, but he's pursuing you. And as you enter into this relationship with him and you begin to grow, you're going to discover that God is inviting you to join him in his work of reaching others. And he speaks to us when he invites us to join him in that work. And we studied how the major ways in which God speaks, primarily through his word, he also speaks to us through prayer. He uh, confirms what he is speaking to us through godly counsel and through our circumstances. But, but then that creates, when we know that God is speaking, when we know that God is inviting us to join him in his work, it creates what we are calling a crisis of belief. When I know that God is speaking and directing me, what I do next, more than anything else, tells me what I really believe about God. It creates a crisis of belief because I've got to decide, am I going to trust God, who he is and what he says, and follow him, or am I going to step back? And this has been a challenge throughout Scripture and throughout history. Well, when God issues that uh, invitation and that crisis of belief comes to us, and you and I decide, I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to accept his invitation to join him. That's when we come to reality number six, and here it is. You must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. Before you even obey him, you have to make adjustments in your life. Uh, this was not uncommon. We raised six children, and uh, it was not uncommon that we would have special days. We would do things as families. Sometimes we told the kids ahead of time what we were doing. Sometimes we didn't. And this was not uncommon for me to go in and wake a child up and say, hey, I'm going I'm to apply this a certain way. So I didn't say it quite like this, but you'll get the point. I'll say, hey, child of mine, I want to invite you to go with me to the zoo today. And that child says, the zoo? Yeah. And they've accepted my invitation. And before I know it, they hop out of bed, they run out the door of their bedroom, they go out into the garage, and they hop in the car. Pajamas, no shoes, no jacket. Have you ever had a kid do that? Oh, they're, they've accepted your invitation. They're they're prepared to obey you, but there's some adjustments that are needed. And, and for us grown-ups, it's much the same way. There are adjustments that we need to make before we can obey God, major adjustments as we encounter them. So today, we're talking about what it takes to adjust your life to God so that you can obey Him. And we want to look at a particular figure in the Old Testament today there are dozens we could look at, but the one I want us to look at today is named Elisha. And the story begins with another prophet named Elijah. Now, if I get a mix today, just ignore it. You know what I mean. Elijah, 
Elisha. Just listen carefully and think with me. We'll, we'll get it straight. Now, Elijah was a prophet in northern Israel. Uh, those of you who are students of Bible history, you may recall that at one time the kingdom of Israel was one kingdom, and then it divided. And as it divided, the people in the north, the, the Israelites, were particularly unfaithful to God. The southern kingdom was also, but particularly in the north. Elijah was a prophet to that northern kingdom. And he went through a series of events in his life, and, and we can't tell the whole story, where he confronted the evil that was in power. And it was a dramatic encounter. It involved confronting by himself uh, several hundred false prophets. Uh, God destroyed uh, those prophets through that encounter. And, um, and Elijah goes into a period, he goes into a funk. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. He, he gets depressed. He, he runs away after this encounter. And sometimes after God's greatest work through you or in you or around you, uh, we can lose heart. And that's hard to understand, but we see this pattern in Scripture, and it happens to Elijah. Well, God works to refresh and restore Elijah, puts him back into his work, and he says, Elisha, here's what I want you to do. I want you, Elisha, to go and anoint a new king for Syria. I want you to go and anoint a new king for Israel. And then I want you to go and anoint an apprentice, someone who's going to replace you as a prophet one day. Now, he didn't know it, and Elisha didn't know it, but that apprenticeship would last about 18 years. It was a long one. But Elisha was being sent to anoint Elisha as a prophet in training. So I want to call your attention to what happens. 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Verse 19. And we're going to look at the last three verses of that chapter. 1 Kings 19 and verse 19. We're talking about adjustments, doing whatever it takes to obey God. And Elisha had to make some major adjustments. Okay, 1 Kings 19, verse 19. Here we go. So he departed from there. This is Elijah. He departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Elisha passed by him, Elijah passed by him, and threw his mantle on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And said, please, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? Now, there's some curiosities in this text I want to call attention to. One is, how can you be plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and uh, be associated just with the last pair? The wording there is a little awkward, so let me, let me help you get a picture of what's happening. He's not doing something that would really be a showstopper at a rodeo. He's just got a pair of oxen, and he's plowing them. But the Bible's making a point. It's saying it very clearly. It's saying a whole lot right there. That, that there are 12 pairs of oxen, 24 total. He's not plowing with all 12 pairs. He's plowing with one pair, the last pair. Other people are plowing with the other pairs. He owns all of these. He's a supervisor, if you will. He, 
He's watching over all of this activity, and he's participating in the activity. And to own 12 pair of oxen was, meant that he was extremely wealthy. He was, he was a wealthy son of a wealthy home. And they belong to him. We know that because later in the story, he's going to burn the oxen. You don't burn other people's stuff. And so, and so they belong to him. He is a young man. He is a man of influence. He has got a bright future ahead of him. He's got power. He's got wealth. And God is about to change all of that with the invitation to join him in his work. God's about to change all of that in Elisha's life. So Elijah comes along. And he takes his prophet's mantle off of his shoulders and he puts it on Elisha, who's probably sweaty and dripping with sweat and dirty, but he puts it around him. He doesn't say a word and he just keeps walking. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody just kind of walked up to you in the middle of your workday, put a, a shawl around your neck and just kept walking on, that would capture my interest. But Elisha apparently understood the significance of it. Elisha puts that around him. He's walking along. And Elisha begins to give chase. The significance of it is that by taking his shaw and putting it around Elisha, Elisha was saying, I'm calling you into an apprenticeship. I'm calling you to be a prophet. I'm calling you to join me. And when Elisha runs up and catches up with him, he knows that he can't leave just this moment. He's got some things he has to deal with. There's some adjustments, major adjustments he needs to make in his life. So he says, hey, can I go back and kiss my mom and dad goodbye? Can I, can I do this? Now, he's not stalling. There are occasions in Jesus' ministry where he called people and they made excuses. There are times where Jesus invited people to follow him, and they said, well, you know, i got to do this first, and i got to do this first. They were stalling. Elisha was not stalling. He really had some major adjustments to take care of. Now, notice how Elijah responds to him. He says, go back again for what have I done to you? And so in, in his response, he's also saying something significant to Elisha. I'm not the one that's doing this to you. What have I done? I'm just doing what God told me to do. God is calling you. This is between you and God. I've got nothing to do with this, really. What have I done to you? This is God calling you. You've got to sort that out. You've got to work that out. And so off Elisha goes, and he begins to make some adjustments. Now, this is a God-sized calling. We've talked about this on and off as we've gone through this series, a God-sized calling. Why is it important to recognize that? Whenever God asks you to do something, a lot of times we think just in terms of our abilities, our resources, our time, and our talent. But more often than not, when God is involved and he's asking you to do something, what you have is inadequate for the task. And it's because God's not asking you to do it all. God's not asking you to fill in all the blanks. God's typically asking you to take the first step and just to follow him in whatever it is he's leading you to do. But if God limited himself to only what you could do, you would never experience what God can do. And so it's always really big, and that's what's happening here. You say, well, how? Well, earlier in chapter 19, Jezebel, the wife of the king, has made her threats towards Elisha. I'm going to kill you, she's saying. 
I'm going to run you down. I'm going to put an end to you. No more Elijah. And so when Elijah comes to Elisha and puts his shawl as a wanted man around Elisha's neck, I mean, the whole world is, is changing. Now, there's no evidence that there was a crisis of belief, but I think I might have had a small crisis. You mean this wanted guy that the government wants to destroy, they want to run him down and kill him, is asking me to join him? And, um, and so the God-sized piece of this is that if I join God in his work, he's going to accomplish something in me on one side versus an entire nation on the other side. What a step of faith that took. I mean, I'm just going to be a wanted man with another wanted guy. They hate us. They want to destroy us. He's got a whole nation that's opposing him. But you know, Elisha would go on and perform more miracles in the Bible than anybody except Jesus Christ. Nobody performed more miracles than Elisha. He didn't know that when he was called. He didn't know God was going to work through him like that and cause a whole nation to stand up and pay attention. He didn't know. All he knew is that if I do what God said, I'm putting my life at risk, I'm giving up wealth, I'm giving up comfort, I'm giving up my future, I'm giving up everything, and it's, it's pretty big. Well, as I mentioned, there was no recorded crisis of belief. As far as I can tell, when Elisha understood what God wanted him to do, Elisha signed up. No hesitation. He placed his faith in God. He's ready to go forward. God was inviting Elisha to join him in his work, and that always requires faith and action. Now, we understand faith is trusting God, but that faith is manifest through action. And what we're seeing this week and next week is that action takes two forms. One form we're talking about today are major adjustments. The other one is obedience. They are not the same. Adjustments are those things I have to do before I can obey. Adjustments are the changes I need to make in my life before I can obey. And I'm adjusting my life to who God is. And everything is, is changing. Everything's being rearranged as I prepare to follow him. I brought with me a couple things today to help visualize this. I brought an R2-D2 lunchbox. Now, you're really going to have to use your imagination. We were kind of working hard on this, okay? This is God's invitation for you to join him, all right? You with me so far? What is this? All right, so, so far so good. Hang with me now, all right? God's invitation to join him. Right there. And this piece of styrofoam is you. You with me so far? What is the styrofoam? No, it's not me. It's you. Okay? All right. It's you. Now, here's the thing. Whenever God invites you to join him in his work, okay, here's, what is this? God's invitation to join him. Then the adjustments are those things that I have to do in order to join him in his work. And so here I am over here, and I want to join him in his work. What's the problem? It's not going to fit. I've got to make an adjustment, right? There's got to be an adjustment before I can join him in his work. And so the adjustment are those changes 
that I have to make. Good deal. Let's see if it works. Okay? The adjustment that I have to make. And once I make those adjustments, then I can obey God. Then I can join him in his work. And hold your breath. It fit. And I can join God in his work. But the adjustments come first before the obedience. Okay? Wasn't that cool? You know, we sit up late thinking about these things. Okay? All right. Maybe I... No comment. All right. So Elisha needed to make major adjustments in his life before he could join God in what he was doing. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment. That was the plow. uh, That was the mechanical stuff. And he gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. What is happening when I make major adjustments to join God? What am I doing? I want to share with you three things. And Elisha illustrates these for us. First of all, what am I doing? I am moving God to the center of my life. I'm moving God to the center of my life. You know, for too many people, God is on the periphery the edge, the outside. He's got a little room, and we put him in that room. But he's not necessarily at the center of our life. And when I make these adjustments, when God moves to the center of my life, it affects everything in my life. The way I think, my thinking's not like his thinking. My purposes in life are not his purposes for my life. The way that I do things are not the way that he does things. And so when he's at the center, everything changes. And we see this throughout the scripture. Um, when God moves to the center of our life, my use of time changes. Think about Noah. How much time did Noah have to spend on the golf course once God moved to the center of his life? Is there anything wrong with playing golf? No, I'm not condemning golf playing. I'm saying that the use of time for Noah changed dramatically. He could not keep doing what he was doing in order to complete the ark. Um, my address may change when God moves to the center of my life. That happened to Abraham. We've studied him already. And when God came to the center of his life, his address had to change. My comfort zone changes when God moves to the center. I can't stay in my comfort zone. Think about Moses. We studied him last Sunday night. We talked about how he was forced out of his comfort zone. You mean you're sending me to do what? Who am I? Who am I? I can't speak, I can't do anything. I'm being pushed out of my comfort zone. Um, My occupation may change. When uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John began to follow Jesus, did their occupation change? They were fishermen. When Matthew began to follow Jesus, did his occupation change? He worked for the IRS, no more. And uh, he was no longer a tax collector. And so when God moved to the center, it changed. My feelings sometimes may have to change. I may have certain attitudes towards people, certain attitudes towards myself, whatever. Think about Jonah. We preached and studied him over a year ago. And, and Jonah had a certain attitude towards Ninevites. And what was that attitude? Hate. He didn't want anything to do with them. They had killed people that he knew. Destroyed lives of people that he knew. And when God came to Jonah and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go preach to the Ninevites so that they might repent. Did Jonah want anything to do with that? 
No, I mean, Jonah, you talk about adjustments. That whole book is about adjustments and what it took for God to bring Jonah to a place where he set his feelings aside and did what God wanted him to do. My future changes when God moves to the center of my life. Uh, the apostle Paul had a great future of being a religious scholar, an expert, a genius, a leader, and well-respected, had a whole community of people that respected him. He had a great career path in front of him and a great trajectory. But when God moved to the center of his life, all of that changed, and his future changed. And so the, one of the most profound adjustments that takes place in my life when I make a major adjustment is that God moves to the center of my life. Now, you can keep doing what you're doing. You can ignore what God is saying to you. But look, when you do that, the life that God had in mind for you just got really small. You lose the larger life. You lose the abundant and the better life when you choose the thing that is not what God has in mind for you. You say, well, what about, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of impatient. I think God told me to do something months ago and nothing has come together. Nothing is changing. Nothing's getting better. Look, God has his own timetable. Sometimes he's just alerting you to what he's going to do. And, and there's a process he's going to take you through we call major adjustments before you're ready to go, before you're ready to do the thing he's calling you to do. And, and you can trust him. Sometimes if, if it's a major move, and just real practically, you may have to deal with debt and pay off some debt. You may have to make some other changes. And you're just going to have to trust God. He may take six years to do it. He may take six months to do it when it should have taken six years. But God is still going to be at work in your life. All you need to do is say, yes, Lord. And you can trust him. He's not turning his back on you because it's taking a while. In relationships, we're going to look more at this next week. But when I obey God, it affects everyone around me. And often the cost that I'm experiencing is going to be a cost that affects others around me, particularly a spouse. And uh, if you know that God's moving to the center of your life, and that's not happening in your spouse's life, can I just tell you that God intends that you be one? That in Genesis and in Malachi 2 and other places, it is the heart of God that you be one. And if your spouse is not on the same page as you, can you trust God to change the heart of your spouse? He changed the heart of Pharaoh. You don't need to bully them or nag them. Give God time to change them. And trust God with that. God, I'll do whatever you say. And I know that you're calling us as a couple, but I'm going to trust you, Lord, to change my spouse's heart. All of that happens as we move God to the center of our lives. Something else that's happening when I'm making a major adjustment is I'm placing all my confidence in him. God moves to the center and that rearranges a lot of things, but another major adjustment is I am placing my confidence in him. Look at what Elijah did. What Elisha did was he went home. Did he just kiss mom and dad goodbye? Look at the text. Did he just kiss mom and dad goodbye? No. What did he do? He burned the oxen. And for the fuel, he used the equipment. He used the plow, the wood. He broke it up, and he burned them up. And, uh, and then he took the meat, and he fed a bunch of people with it. He had a big party. I'm leaving, guys. I'm burning up my oxen. Have a steak on me. Now, that's a couple of things that's happening. One He's obviously liquidating his assets. He's getting out of the farming business. And uh, that's a big adjustment in and of itself, right? But look at what he does by 
not just selling the beef and selling the equipment, he burns it up. You know what he's doing? He's burning the ships. There's no going back. He's made it almost impossible for him to ever go back to this way of life that he used to have. I'm not trying this out, God. You've invited me to join you. You've invited me to go with you. You've invited me to do this thing, and I'm saying yes to it. I'm going all in. I'm not trying it out for a little while to see if it works. I'm not saying, well, maybe this is what God wants. He is going all the way in. So what do you need to do if you're going to put all your trust in God? Burn your oxen. Number three, last one. What is happening when I make major adjustments to join God? I'm letting go of the past in order to follow God today. That's a big one, y'all. I don't know what's in your past, but it's interesting how powerful the past exerts a hold over us. And Elisha certainly had a past. I think of the Apostle Paul, he had a past. And he said, you know, I was respected. I had these degrees. I had all this accomplishment in my resume. He said, it was waste. I consider all that waste. God's moved to the center of my life. I just want to know Jesus. I just want to know Christ. And so how we handle the past is really important because our past can exert a powerful influence and a control over us. And it's, it serves a real purpose in our lives. If, um, if I'm driving a car, let's say you and I, after church, we're going to go to lunch together. We're not, but let's say we are, okay? So I get, I get in the car, and I invite you to get with me in the car. We get in the car, okay? We're going to go. And you may not have ridden with me before, but I have a really unusual way of driving. I put my hand up on the wheel. We're going to go that way. You with me so far? Which way are we going? That way, right? But I look this way. I say, you ready to go? And you said, yeah. I say, okay, here we go. And I start driving. And I never look forwards. I just look backwards. And maybe I can keep it going forward if I'm pretty good. I got a friend in the FBI. They learn how to drive 50 miles an hour backwards. But can you drive 50 miles an hour forward and never look forward? I don't know about that one. Because you don't see lights. You don't see stop signs. You don't see the cars in front of you. You don't see who stopped. You don't see things in the road. I mean, it's a major purpose to, to deal with your past properly. That's a major adjustment to us because it can exert so much power and, and influence over us. So I've got to deal with my past. I've got to recognize it for what it is. You know, I believe with all my heart, one of the reasons so many churches in North America are struggling is because they're trying to go forward by looking backward. They're hanging on so much to the past that they are missing what God is wanting to do in the present. Uh, in Ezra chapter 3, they were going to rebuild the temple. It had been destroyed. They had gone into exile. They're being released. They come back. They lay a foundation for the new temple. And the priests and the leaders of the families who remembered the old temple, they saw the new foundation, and it was so small compared to the one they remembered that they wept because they remembered the past. Haggai the prophet comes along in Haggai 2. And he says, and this is God speaking now through Haggai the prophet. He says, this temple, it's to you as nothing, isn't it? I mean, it just seems like nothing to you. He says, I want you to know that this new temple, 
that I'm going to fill it with glory, just like the old one. And so they're going, great, great, God's going to fill it with his glory. And then he says this, and the glory of this temple is going to be greater than the former. Why is that? How could a temple that was architecturally less grand, less wonderful, not as impressive to us, humanly speaking, be better and more glorious than the one in the past? Because it's the one Jesus was going to walk in. It's the one Jesus was going to walk in. He was going to fill it with his glory, with himself, with the Son of God. And sometimes we can be hanging on to the past. And look, celebrate the past, grieve the past, uh, enjoy the past. There's a value to the past, but do not let the past steal your present. Don't let the past. We are the church here today. We are not Wind Baptist Church in the year 2000. We are not Wind Baptist Church in 1995. We are not Wind Baptist Church in 2005. We are Wind Baptist Church today, 2017. And God has a work for us to do, and we are his church. There's nobody else to do it. We're it. Look around you. Say, hi, church. And it's as true for a church as it is for me as an individual. I can be put such a high value on the past that I ignore the value of what God is wanting to do right now in my life. And I'm not being insensitive by saying that. I know that's a, a major adjustment. That's why I put it here. It's a major adjustment for you and me to say, God, I'm not going to look backward anymore. I want to go forward with you. I want to go forward with you. I want what you have for me today, and I don't want to miss one thing that you have in mind for me. You know, when John the Baptist began to preach, the first word of the gospel was repent. And you know, the word repent, I think, has a real negative connotation for most of us. Because we think of repentance strictly in terms of our sin. And yes, we should repent of our sin. We should be sorry for our sin. But repentance is so much more than that. When John the Baptist preached the message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus came along and he preached the very same message. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That wasn't a negative message. That was a positive message. He said, you need to turn away from what you're you're dealing with your sin, your life without God, trying to do things on your own, trying to manage your own affairs, trying to decide what's best for you, trying to decide what would make an impact if your life was being used. You need to forget all of that. Turn away from that. Repent from that. Why? Because the entire rule of God is available to you right now. Everything that God is, everything that God wants to accomplish on this planet, everything that God has in terms of power and wisdom and truth, and love, and grace, and the capacity to change a human life, he says, repent, turn to him, turn your heart to him, because he is available to you right now. All of God is available to you right now. That's positive. That's not negative. And so as I stand before you as your brother and your pastor, I would say to myself, and I would say to you, Let's repent. Let's repent. 
Let's turn from a life without him and trying to figure it out on our own and putting God in a little box. Let's move him to the center of our life. Let me ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. In this time of response, I want to invite you, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to come. And I pray you'll be the first one out of the balcony or out of the pew downstairs. And like so many recently have trusted Christ or begun to hear his voice in new ways and begun to follow him, if he's speaking to you this morning, would you come? Take one of these pastors by the hand. Say, I want to share with the church that I'm trusting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. When you do that, he will wash away your sins, carry them away. And his spirit will come to live inside you, to change you from the inside out. And you will begin this journey of experiencing God. And so I invite you to come. These pastors are here. The only reason they're here is not because they look good. They're here to pray with you. They're here to encourage you. And I invite you to come. And then brothers or sister, uh, you're at this very moment that Elisha was at. And you know that God's calling you. And that you've got to make some changes. You've got to make some major adjustments in your life. I don't pretend to know what those are. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But you know if he's speaking to you. So I would encourage you right where you're sitting. As the rest of us sing in just a moment, you may just want to bow your head and say, Oh God, I see now what I've got to do if I'm going to join you. And Lord, I say yes. Forgive me for resisting, for fighting, for holding back, for not even asking you. Let him, let him guide you through that process. If you need to pray with one of the pastors or just come on your own or with a friend and take a few moments at the altar to pray, just come before him in a very visible but very personal way and just say, God, I heard what you said. We invite you to come.